From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we return to the theme of food in the kitchen, the garden, and the campsite with true five-minute stories from writers Anne Levin, Meredith Prince, and John Van Kirk. The table was set, the doorbell rang, and I buzzed Stan in. We had just started dating, and I really liked him but I didn't know what he thought about me. I've grown my own garlic continuously for more than a decade, and the drive to maintain the cycle is almost compulsive now. Chris had volunteered to make dinner the first night, so the rest of us went to work putting up the other tents while he set up shop on the picnic table under the rain fly, assembling the Coleman stove and firing up the lantern. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Virginia Foley finds sustenance in the words she feasts on each day. Words are what I crave. I gobble them ravenously from dawn to dusk. That's just ahead on Read 650. Anne Levin is a writer, editor, and journalist. Her articles, essays, and book reviews have been published by the Associated Press, USA Today, AARP, and dozens of other newspapers and magazines. Anne also cooks, and today she shares a story of a memorable date with The White Meal. The table was set, the doorbell rang, and I buzzed Stan in. We had just started dating, and I really liked him, but I didn't know what he thought about me. After some awkward chit-chat, he sat down, and I brought the food to the table. Sliced mozzarella, poached chicken breasts, mashed potatoes, and steamed cauliflower. A white meal, he said in his usual deadpan voice. Then he burst into laughter, and at that moment, I knew that whatever we had going on, it was probably going to last. A couple weeks earlier, we'd gone out on our first real date. For months, I'd seen him around the newsroom, a tall, skinny guy with shaggy black hair and a big brown camera bag, hanging out with all the other photographers. I thought he was interesting, but it was hard to figure him out because he was so quiet and reserved. He suggested that we go to the chicken pie shop in Hillcrest, which was near the newspaper where we worked. It was a San Diego institution, founded during the Depression and popular with the old-timers for its cheap, delicious food, but also with the hipsters who were drawn to its retro coffee shop chic. I was new to town and a bit of a food snob, but I said, sure, why not? Mostly because I wanted to hang out with him. Both of us ordered the chicken pie dinners, which came with mashed potatoes, coleslaw, and big soft dinner rolls. And when the food came, I blurted out the first thing that popped into my head. Look, I said with amazement, everything is white. He was astonished too, even though as a native San Diegan, he'd been eating there his whole life. Maybe it took a newcomer to notice the obvious, but it's all we talked about for the rest of the day. 
and it's what inspired me to invite him over and make a white meal of my own. After that, we did everything together. We went up to L.A. to watch Wayne Gretzky play hockey, drove down the coast to Ensenada for Pacific Lobster dinners, flew up to San Francisco and stayed in a Basque boarding house in Chinatown so we could get up early for dim sum. All our friends were as restless as we were, in their late 20s or early 30s, jockeying for the best beats and assignments at the paper. No one was married. No one had any money. We went to the bars that served free appetizers for happy hour. All the while, Stan and I were both doing tryouts at better newspapers in bigger cities. We were dying to get out of San Diego, which we considered a provincial backwater at the end of the continent, where nothing important ever happened, and the two big stories were SeaWorld and the San Diego Zoo. We never talked about what we'd do if only one of us got a job offer, which was exactly what happened to Stan. Eventually, after some agonizing, I quit my job without a job and moved to New York with him. All that was more than 30 years ago. Recently, we went back for a visit and stopped by the chicken pie shop for old time's sake. Ever since we had landed in San Diego, I felt that the sweet, sleepy city I once knew had disappeared. Now it was twice the size, with crumbling highways and gaudy skyscrapers, and the newspaper that used to cover it all was a shadow of its former self. Thankfully, at the chicken pie shop, nothing much had changed. The pies were still filled with chicken chunks and gravy and served up with mashed potatoes, coleslaw, and big soft dinner rolls. And except for the tiny flecks of grated carrots in the coleslaw, everything was white. During a long career in daily journalism, Anne Levin served as national news editor at the Associated Press, coordinating coverage of elections in the 50 states and every imaginable kind of natural and human disaster. Following her job as a full-time journalist, Anne worked as a freelance editor and began writing personal essays and memoir. Anne lives and writes in New York City, and you can learn more on her website, annelevinwriter.com. Meredith Prince is a reader, writer, and mother whose writing career has meandered from newspaper sports writer to university communication instructor to public relations professional. She's also a gardener and a cook. And here's Meredith reading her essay, Love and Garlic. The pot is simmering on the stove. I inhale deeply, triggering worry that it doesn't smell as good as it should. So I cut another head from a braid of garlic hanging on the wall. Five remain of the seven braids I put up near the end of the summer. They need to last eight more months, or we'd have to buy some from a grocery store. Garlic is one of my favorite garden staples. It's cycle marking the time of nearly a full year going by. It's planted around Halloween and harvested around Independence Day. The removal of the tall stalks as they begin to list like dominoes suspended in mid-fall creates room for my tomato plants just as they begin to leaf out voluminously. 
A few weeks on the patio dries their skin to a familiar papery texture before they're sorted into three piles. Use now, braid for later, and plant for next year. Heads that get nicked with a spade as I dig them from the earth are perishable and need to be used quickly. The biggest heads are saved for planting, honored with being the cloves that will perpetuate the garlic harvest for another year. Everything else gets hung for eventual use, like in today's dinner. I cut a chili pepper down from the ristra and scrape some of the seeds into the pot. Chili peppers are fun to grow too, from spending Valentine's Day weekend dropping the tiny seed discs, along with those for five varieties of tomatoes, into the divots of dozens of jiffy pellets, to the finality of Labor Day weekend spent knotting their stems to a length of string to be hung to dry. But the cycle for chili peppers is shorter than that of garlic, crammed into one elongated summer. I've grown my own garlic continuously for more than a decade, and the drive to maintain the cycle is almost compulsive now. Other vegetables can swap in and out of the rotation, but each year's garlic has always been descended from the previous years. To break the cycle now is to start over. This is distressing for some nebulous reasoning to do with sustainability and family values that becomes harder to root with each passing season. The heads I set aside to plant this year are still waiting for me, although it's nearing Thanksgiving. This year, time got away from me, and I still hope to get them in the ground before a hard frost comes. The tomatoes bubbling away on the stove are the last ones collected when I tore down the garden to prepare it for winter. There were only enough paste tomatoes this season to can five jars of sauce, meaning fewer winter dinners that are the culmination of a year of gardening love. This year, life got away from me, and the garden didn't get as much attention as it needed. My daughters used to help me plant the garlic. We'd enjoy a warm fall afternoon of quiet slanting sunlight together, me digging the holes, and them nestling the cloves upright and topping them off with soil. Now they're too busy, or too cool, for me and my garden. I can feel them getting away from me. The time they devote to weeding and watering dwindles each year. But still, the wonderful thing about gardening is that trial and error is actually better said as trial and improvement. Something always comes of it, something is always learned from it, and next year is always another chance to do it better. I reach under the cabinet where my jar of summer's dried oregano is waiting. I crumble a handful into the pot of steaming sauce and call my girls to dinner. The table is set, each place marked by a dish of yellow spaghetti squash strands topped with the hot orangey-red sauce fresh from the stove and crowned with a pyramid of meatballs. Fresh parsley adorns each mound. We dig in and a peaceful silence binds us together. This moment... I won't let get away from me. Meredith Prince earned an MA in communication and she served on the board of directors of a local nature organization and she's also on the leadership team of a global women's network. Meredith lives and gardens in her home state of Delaware where she's also working on a family history memoir. Aroma and taste are among the most powerful triggers for memories. John Van Kirk and his brothers gathered to summon familiar flavors and to remember their mother by preparing and sharing a memorable meal. Here's John Van Kirk reading 
under the rain fly. From the time of her diagnosis, it took our mother about a year and a half to die. From my home in West Virginia, it was a 10-hour drive to the house in New Jersey, but I visited as often as I could. With each trip, there was less of her to see. Near the end, nothing gave her pleasure. Food turned metallic in her mouth. Six months after the funeral, I drove the six hours to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to meet my brothers and nephews for our annual fishing trip. It rained on and off as I crossed the West Virginia mountains, and I fished the Yellow Breaches Creek in gray light for a couple of hours before heading for the campground. My brothers would be driving in from New Jersey, and I didn't expect them until dark. I set up my small tent and a rain fly in a light drizzle, built a fire, and sat in a camp chair to await their arrival. By the time they got there, Chris and his two boys, Tyler and Patrick, in one car, and Jeff and his son, Kyle, in another, the rain was pouring down. It was the first time we'd all been together since the funeral, but we didn't talk about that yet. Back when we'd planned the trip, Chris had volunteered to make dinner the first night, so the rest of us went to work putting up the other tents while he set up shop on the picnic table under the rain fly, assembling the Coleman stove and firing up the lantern. Have you seen Dad lately? I asked. How's he doing? He's all right. Lonely, Jeff said, as he put the tent poles together. Yeah. Gradually, the tents carved out their bits of dry air from the wet. Under the fly, steam was rising from the pots on the stove. So what's for dinner, Chris? It's a surprise, Chris said. That was fine. We are not a family that believes camping is an excuse for primitive food. Even when we have steaks with potato salad, the potato salad is homemade according to our mother's recipe. And if you want to see a superior sneer, just put a plastic container of store-bought macaroni salad in front of one of us. Traditional camping trip meals for us are chicken a la king made from scratch with fresh mushrooms and freshly grilled chicken in the cream sauce, homemade chili over rice, spaghetti with sausage and meatballs. Even the sandwiches we eat for lunch are garnished with sun-dried tomatoes. At last it was time. Chris opened the smaller of the pots and ladled rice into plastic bowls. Then he took the lid off the larger pot. The aroma hit me like a summer wind, cutting through the damp and the seething rain with the warmth of being kissed goodnight by your mother. Is that what I think it is, Jeff said. What, Kyle said. Lamb curry, I said. Mom used to make it. I haven't had it in probably 10 years. Where'd you find a recipe? It's mom's recipe, Chris said. Found it in one of her old cookbooks. Did you bring chutney, I asked. What do you think, Chris said. It wouldn't be complete without the chutney. The rain poured down around us. The next day, we would fish between showers and come back to find our campsite so thoroughly drenched that we would break camp and leave a day early. But right then, we sat, and Chris filled our plates. No one had said a word about our mother. We would talk later, after we savored the rich flavors of a dish she made when we were boys. The sweet, spicy tang of the mango chutney, the tender lamb sharp with curry, 
the bright green peas, the bits of apple, the sauce turning the perfect rice yellow under the light of the lantern. John Van Kirk's short fiction has earned the O. Henry Award and the Iowa Review Fiction Prize, and his novel, Song for Chance, was favorably reviewed in the New York Times Book Review. He lives in Ashland, Kentucky. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I am your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Mayer, Karen Duques, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show is produced with help from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. If you like this show and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on episodes you may have missed, like siblings or dog stories. And you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. Coming up right after the break, it's Virginia Foley with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. I'm Ed McCann and you're listening to Read 650. Virginia Foley seeks harmony in the combination of letters and words, juxtaposing an artistic need with a primal one for sustenance and survival in nature. For today's Between the Lines segment, Virginia invites us to join her while she forages. Wild turkeys roam our backyard, their snoods swinging, Wattles hanging loosely like an old man's neck, pecking acorns and grass beneath their three-pronged feet. I watch them scratch the ground in search of seeds spilled from my bird feeder, as I too search for sustenance. Words are what I crave. I gobble them ravenously from dawn to dusk. I open my MacBook, and it's there for the tasting. Emails from literary magazines and journals invite me to read stories and poems. I wolf down essays, fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry and prose. My eyes dart left to right as I gorge on page after page of stories, swallowing without chewing, one piece leading to another and another. I read writers' bios. I click their websites, follow them on social media. I devour their blogs find their books, tap to load a sample on my Kindle. I pick and peck, searching out periodicals where my own work might fit. Yet I hunger. If only I could write like this, like that, like them. I'm ravenous for words. I love their delicacy, their spirit, their anger, their lust. I trill timidly when I meet a new one that mouth-watering fusion of letters that slips straight down the gullet. I scribble them on feathery scraps of paper. They're scattered all over my desk. They fill notebooks, diaries, and journals. Framed quotes from writers, both famous and obscure, 
Surround me in this space where I spend my days foraging. This is my happy place. Even though I often write of darkness and sorrow, old seeds that are hard to digest. Over dinner, I regale my husband with stories written by newfound writers who've bared their hearts, told their tales, taught me through their expert use of syntax, grammar, storytelling, and art. They honor our flock, my fine feathered friends. When the day ends, I climb the stairs to roost beside my husband, settle under our duvet, and pull its coziness up to my chin. I grab my Kindle and wake it up. It's late, love, my husband clucks. You should try to get some sleep. Seconds later, he's snoring. I envy his nesting habits. A few chapters in, I close one tired eye, try to read with the other. I finally drift off to sleep, dreaming of the morn, when I can rejoin the rafter, rooting for a place in the pecking order amongst the finest toms and hens. Virginia Foley's work has appeared in literary journals and magazines in Canada, UK, and the US, most notably in Talking Writing, Dreamers, Creative Writing, Canada's History Magazine, and the South Shore Review. She lives and writes and roosts overlooking Lake St. Clair in Ontario, Canada. Between the Lines is the place where writers of all genres can share their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org. If you're in the podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Read 650 website and want to get each episode of the show delivered to you, along with a deep dish pizza and a bottle of red wine, download any podcast app, then search for Read 650 and follow the show. We release every Writer Wednesday at 6.50 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm just kidding about the wine, by the way, uh, and the pizza. That wraps up today's show. Thanks again to writers Anne Levin, Meredith Prince, John Van Kirk, and Virginia Foley. And thank you for listening and for helping spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.